Welcome back to the Institute for Person-Centered Care podcast. My name is Ann Garten, and I am your host. And I am extremely excited today to invite and and uh, share with you Ben Green. Welcome, Hello. Ben. Thanks for having me. So Love excited it. to be here. Yes, and we're really excited because Ben is also going to be part of our continuing education this afternoon. And so for those of you who are going to be there um, this afternoon, we'll make that announcement and, and make sure that you come back to this podcast and, and listen. So, Ben, I wonder if we start. Actually, I'm going to start. I'm going to let everyone know that I am a middle-aged cis woman and that I am an ally and an advocate, but I'm always learning. I have a lot of friends who are in the LGBTQ plus community, but I'm going to be honest. We talk horses together. We don't necessarily talk about gender and uh, sexual identity and things of that nature. So I want to come from that space because I think that's where a lot of folks come from, as well as uh, in that in that safe space of uh, for providers to know where we are coming from, because I am that as well. And so we're going to have an open conversation, and I'm so looking forward to it. And so on that note, I'm going to now let you introduce yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I I think of myself as being in that same space. I'm also always learning new things, and I have lots of friends who are in the LGBTQ community. And likewise, we talk about, you know, not as much horses, but dogs and video games and books. And, you know, we're a lot of things other than our identities. So I think we're both in that space of just what am I going to learn today, which is awesome. It is awesome. I love that. So I think one of the reasons uh, that we at the Institute have gone down this path of wanting to learn more is we know that folks in the LGBTQ plus community do not get safe care or Mm. quality care. Right. And so we want to change that space for people because that's extremely important. Um, And and I think the other piece that's also important. important to understand for providers is then we add other layers and more biases, stigma, discrimination occur. You know, both you and I are Caucasian, mm-hmm. right? We add the uh, piece for LGBTQ plus that may be a person of color. We add more biases mm-hmm. and, and, and what have you. So we're not going to be able to speak to those things because neither one of us are that, right? But I think we can talk a little bit about um, how we can make care safe and inclusive and and quality, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that's, you know, I came out as transgender almost 10 years ago now, and I've been doing a lot of advocacy and education work since then. And in particular, going to the doctor has always been a point of pain for me. And I love, you know, working with hospitals and working with medical schools, and that's always really wonderful. But I tend to You know, when it comes to my own life, I tend to avoid going to the doctor because of how much kind of either mistreatment, whether it was intentionally malicious or just poorly informed care I I have received. Yeah. So I think that's the important piece for me is that we're always learning what we said at the very beginning. Right. And and I know that I will make mistakes today in this conversation and I'll share with leader or the listeners that you have complete permission to say, ooh, and that's crossing a boundary that's probably not appropriate and not doing it out of maliciousness, just out of unknowing. Yeah. 
Absolutely. My catchphrase is the only question I won't answer is the question you don't ask. So fire away. Yeah. So uh, folks need to understand that physical and mental health needs due to barrier stigma and discrimination increase for our LGBTQ plus population. And then the, there's some key things around, I think, gender dysphoria that is a good conversation maybe to start with, because I think people don't really understand what that is, right? And and the definition of it. We're just going to start there is, yeah. you know, it's really about the emotional distress related to the stigma, discrimination, the barriers that you meet, not necessarily around the needs of gender. I, I, well, it is around the needs of gender yeah. identity, but it's not around you not knowing yourself. Yeah, absolutely. So I would definitely love to start with some quick definitions. So I know you introduced yourself using the word cis. Cis or cisgender just means you identify with the sex you were assigned at birth. You have your sex, which is about your body, and your gender, which is about your identity. For a lot of people, those are the same thing. And so they don't ever really notice any kind of friction. Sometimes they don't even notice that they have a gender identity because they just, it's so intertwined or the same with their biological sex, which is fine. So that's cisgender. And then transgender just means means different. It means that my gender identity is not the sex I was assigned at birth. I was assigned female at birth, and that's not quite right. I identify as male and have been, you know, living as male and aligning my body to that experience for the past decade. So gender dysphoria is that feeling of discomfort due to that mismatch, and it shows up in different ways for different people about different parts of their body or at different times. And there's also an additional word I want to enter into this conversation, which is gender euphoria, which I think is so wonderful because, you know, trans identities aren't just about escaping our bodies and escaping misery and all these things that are so horrible. And we think of really kind of sad stories when we think about trans people, but I don't actually have a sad life. Like, I love being trans. I love my body. I love my life. I'm married. I'm happy. And I have found this, this joy and this feeling of home in my body. And I think everybody has opportunities for gender euphoria. You know, think about a shirt that makes you feel really confident. Think about something like, you know, a, you know, uh, like fillers or Botox, like that's gender affirming care. Things that make you feel confident as a man or as a woman or in your identity, that's gender euphoria. We all have that. So when we're thinking about talking to trans patients, it's not just how can we help you be not miserable, but also how can you move towards joy? So I know I wanted top surgery, which was for me a mastectomy, to be able to reduce the feminine appearance of my chest, make it feel more traditionally masculine. And I wanted hormone therapy a few years later, not because I was miserable without it, but because I'm even more joyful with it. So noting that dysphoria is something that we absolutely want to avoid, and that can happen both internally and externally. I don't really have internal dysphoria anymore. I'm very comfortable with my body, but sometimes the way that people treat me, whether it's because I get called ma'am, even though I have a beard, which like at this point, what's going on there, you know? So the dysphoria can come from externally the way I'm treated or internally the way my body shows up. So different people, you know, experience things in different ways. I'm going to go down that path with as a provider because that could be one of those barriers that I find. How do I even present to you in some of my questions, right? And and I think I know how, but I'm going to have you share a little bit about that because um, maybe you need to see a gynecologist, Mm -hmm. right? Or let's talk about you're just having an appendix removed, yeah. right? And and I need to care for you in having an appendix removed, but uh, maybe for the individual, they haven't changed their legal name. So oh, there's mm-hmm. that piece of the puzzle of 
where do I go with that? You know? So I, I think, I think those are the things that may be helpful because I, I believe to be true that the majority of providers want to provide safe care and, and person-centered care, but they also get stuck in that, well, what do I say and what do I do? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think with there, there's something that you touched on a little bit, which is when I came out and when any person comes out as transgender, we immediately get diagnosed with what's called the transgender elbow. And the transgender elbow syndrome basically says that a trans person breaks their elbow. I don't know if you can actually break your elbow. I'm not a very medical person. You can. But okay, so let's say I break my elbow. I go to the emergency room. I say I have a broken elbow. And they say, well, actually, I don't know how to treat a transgender elbow. It's, it's actually not a transgender elbow. It's just a normal person elbow. elbow. Right. Most of the care that I need is just, you know, the care that any other person would need. I just, there are ways that I need my provider to respect me. Like anyone has unique things they might need as signs of respect from their healthcare provider. So I think knowing that, you know, Transgender people need all types of care. I have to go to the dentist. I have to go to the gynecologist. Now, that's in a, a space where there are some unique considerations, and it's worth looking for your specialty, unique considerations for patient care in this specialty. But in general, like, I need normal things that people need at the gynecologist. I need to go see a gastroenterologist. I need to go see a psychiatrist. Like, I go to any doctor like any other person would to receive the care that any other person would. Uh, and I have been turned away from doctors in the past because they didn't feel they were a or comfortable treating me. And that's really challenging. So I would say, first and foremost, knowing that you're going to see transgender patients and that they don't necessarily need something specifically transgender from you. They just kind of need your support uh, and your respect, you know, using the right name and pronouns, using affirming language, that kind of thing. And in terms of the other question you asked, which is asking those appropriate questions, the big question I encourage you to reflect on is, Am I focusing on care or curiosity? Because I have a lot of people who lean into curiosity versus care. So there are questions I get asked all the time that are unbelievably invasive by people who I know don't need to know that information. There was one story in particular. I went, I'm on testosterone, so I have to get my blood work done every couple of months. So I've been on testosterone for three and a half years, and I need to get my blood work done every couple of months to just make sure all my levels are right. And when my endocrinologist had sent in the lab request, she had accidentally, even though I had had my legal sex marker changed, on one part of the paperwork she had put male, and on one part of the paperwork later on she had put female, and so it broke the computer at the Quest Labs. And we get to this Quest Labs and they go to start to, to draw my blood and they're like, oh, the computer is broken. It doesn't know if you're male or female. And I was like, okay, awesome. Like, I wasn't going to come out here, but like, yes, I'm transgender. That's what's going on. They were like, okay. It was so broken. They did have to call somebody in to come fix it. And we're waiting for this person to come. And the person who I'm in the room with said, you know, do you mind if I ask you a question? And I was not having a good day. I was tired. I'm also really afraid of needles. So I was like, ah, oh, I guess, because I needed that blood work done to continue my prescription. So I said, fine. She asked a relatively invasive question. I answered it as briefly as I could. And then she said, that was so helpful. Thanks so much. And she left. And I was like, okay, I get to like sit here quietly and like take a breather before they fix the computer. And instead, she went and told every other lab technician that there was a transgender person answering questions. And they lined up outside of my door. And I spent the next two hours having office hours with a tourniquet on answering everyone's personal questions about my genitals, my sex life, terminology, everything. I was not being paid for this. I was paying for this time. This was a really challenging experience. And I have been back to get my blood work only once 
since. It took me three years to feel comfortable enough to go back to do that because that was an exhausting experience. Now, since then, I'm also really hyper aware of I get to the doctor and I'm like, I just know you're going to ask me some really invasive questions. And sometimes there's information that, listen, I'm not a healthcare provider, so I don't understand everything you need to know. And what helps a lot is to explain why you need to ask a more personal question. Hey, I need to know about the, you know, about the kind of sex you're having or what body parts you are using when you have sex, because I need to know what screenings to run. Even if you don't think that's relevant to me as a GI, I need to know about these, you know, certain risk factors. Explaining why you need to know builds a lot of that comfort and trust. Indeed. Good communication. Yes. Appropriate good communication, Mm -hmm. right? I think that is so important. A, I'm sorry you went through that because that's just awful for anybody and especially for yourself. And, and... There's the piece of why we're having the education this afternoon, because yeah. what is it that you need to know? And I think leaders in healthcare need to engage further in having their staff, their providers go to these types of education. Absolutely. Because we're not, we are curious at times, right? Yeah. And we might not be in that safe space with others to be able to ask those things. And so where do we get that information is from you all. Absolutely. But it's got to be appropriate place, not while you're getting the care that you need. Yeah, curiosity is not a bad thing. I love curiosity. I love that people have questions. In a vacuum, I would be thrilled to go and do a training for all those Quest Lab people. That's my whole job. I do that every day. But you have to know when that curiosity is appropriate, when a patient who's just coming out or a kid or someone who is really afraid of needles and is totally freaking out, like, when is it the right time? We're going to read the room a little. Well, not only read the room, but ask for that permission in a way that what is it that you're really asking for and where is it going with back to that good communication, right? Because I think you put all in um, children, right? Sometimes they may be with somebody that they're not comfortable answering those questions. Or heck, Mm -hmm. an adult may be with somebody who's not comfortable answering those questions. So I think that's the other important piece is the what do I need to know why and what am I doing with this information? Yeah, absolutely. And making sure, especially with those pediatric patients, that like you're making some space to say, like, let's have a little bit of time to talk, you know, without your parents. That's a fairly standard operating procedure. And if they share things about their gender identity, it is so important that you don't share that with those parents until you have that child's explicit permission. When we have, you know, 45% of the homeless population of youth is LGBTQ, that's not by accident. And so we need to make sure that those kids are on board with those conversations, that they feel that that's a safe conversation for you to have. Yeah, I think it's also important to recognize that our suicide rate amongst that population is higher than uh, mm-hmm. s- with children that are cisgender, right? So I think it's it's extremely important to understand that we have to create a safe culture for everyone and allow them to do the driving in in some of that. Yeah, absolutely. And you know that suicide rate it is so high. It's because it's one in four, or sometimes up to even higher, especially of considering suicide with all of the anti-LGBTQ legislation. But having even one single supportive adult in your life, that rate plummets. Depression plummets, anxiety plummets. Having just one person, however often you see them, that sees you as you are, that respects you and treats you with love and kindness, that saves lives. Genuinely, even if you're seeing somebody only, you know, a couple times a year or once a month, that little bit of respect of saying, I see you as you are is life saving. Indeed. 
So you hit two of my my big pieces on here. I hit good communication and training. Yeah. Folks, I always have notes. You know, I got to <laughs> have my notes. Always be prepared. <laughs> right? But I think you just stepped into that psychological safety. Yeah. Right? And so let's go into that a little bit. Um, uh, because I think what happens is sometimes providers don't believe you. Mm-hmm. Right. So they they question that or personally, maybe for a certain diagnosis, folks may blame themselves. Right. Yeah. And, and it's not necessarily something that it's it's something that any of us could get. But that's what they think because of they've, what they've read or or um, what people have pushed. Right. Yeah. Things of that nature. So I wonder if we go down that a little bit and how we how we work through that together. Yeah, and I think I'm even going to step one one step back in the, that process of psychological safety, which is how do you become a safe enough presence that someone feels comfortable telling you that they're LGBTQ? You know, I everywhere that I go, every single person that I meet, I am doing a constant mental calculus of is this a safe person? I live in Missouri. Missouri is not known for its lovingness of the trans community. So any person I meet, they say, what do you do for work? I've got to figure out real fast, okay, did this person use their pronouns when they introduced themselves? Is there any kind of like a pride bumper sticker on their car? Do they have a pin? Did they laugh at a joke that I made? Did they mention a TV show or a weekend plan? I'm looking for any tiny piece that I can to, to guess if I'm going to be safe. And in medical situations, I can't afford to guess wrong. And so if I don't have evidence, it's, it's not going to be safe. And that's a big thing is that it's not about the presence of clear negativity as much as it is about the absence of clear support. We've got to be proactive and letting people know because, you know, I'm not someone that people would guess. I know I don't, quote unquote, look transgender anymore. I've been out for 10 years. I'd like to think I'm a, I'm a cute guy. Like, I'm, I'm doing okay for myself. And so not everyone would know that. So they don't think, you know, people say, oh, I'll just, you know, I'll share my pronouns if I know I'm with a trans patient. I'll tell a trans patient that I would support them. But you don't actually know who is and isn't a trans patient or who has a trans partner or a trans child or someone that's in their life that's trans. We need to be sending those proactive signals out as often as we can because we don't know who's, who's doing that mental math and what score we're getting and whether or not we're coming across as safe people. My provider hat's coming out. Yeah, I love it. So in the acute care, I'm going to give somebody, some people some examples. When I introduce myself as a nurse and I put my name on the board, it's pretty easy to add my pronouns. Yeah, absolutely. I don't even have to have the conversation. But that alone shares mm-hmm. that I'm a safe space. It's such a low lift. It's so little effort. It's so it's, – it's minimal impact on you. And the impact that that has on the person you're showing that signal to, I, I cannot emphasize enough how big of a safety signal that is for the patients that you are, are sending that message to. I think the other piece to remember is our biases of age groups because yeah. that also, that single action can also help our older folks that yeah. are in the LGBTQ plus population, right, in community. And and so I think that we tend to put our biases in and in that uh, we don't have to worry about it with this person. Well, you have no mm-hmm. idea unless you exactly. have specifically and asked that. they might have a transgender family member. Like, we never know. And that goes to one of my – I love catchphrases. One of my other catchphrases is leave room for people to surprise you. So if you go into a room and say, well, I know that this person, you know, maybe they're a little older or maybe they are really religious or whatever it is, I think this person is going to 
going to be upset if I share my pronouns, but they might not be. You, you never know. And the more that we normalize it, the less likely they are to get upset if they see it again or if someone in their life comes out to them as transgender because they say, oh, it turns out this is just a way the world is changing. Like I was annoyed when everybody got cell phones and now I was annoyed that everybody started sharing their pronouns and you catch up because the world's going to keep moving and I just have to accept that that's normal. And so it, it builds it into the world. And we never know, you know, what someone's connection is, what their identity is. You're absolutely right. Yeah. I think that's the piece too. When, when I get pushback from a patient, literally I just share, I'm making it a safe space for everyone. And whether if I'm cisgender, it doesn't matter that you have my pronouns maybe, but for somebody else it might. Yeah. And it might be something that connects me with that person. And, and, it, and it's a quality improvement project that we're working on on the unit or something of that yeah, nature exactly. so that they can let it go. Yeah. And right. you can even like, if you want to, you know, I focus a lot on leading with curiosity and figure out what's going on with people. So you could say like, how does this impact you? Like, if you could let me know the way in which this impacts your care, let me know. And like, they're not going to be able to come up with anything beyond the woke mind virus or whatever right, it is. Right, so right. asking those questions of, can you, you know, is this something that you have heard of before? People might just be confused or misinformed or angry, but, you know, asking those questions or exactly like you said, this is just a, it's a quality improvement project to make sure all our patients feel comfortable. Right. I think that's perfect. Perfect. Right. Yeah. I wonder if you could share a little bit too, um, some other examples and I'm, I'm, knocking my head here a little bit as well, because providers are reluctant to ask questions because they, yeah. they're not necessarily comfortable or have the training or what have you. And I wonder if there are other examples that you could share and we can talk back and forth a little bit on how we might change how we, we ask that or how we might be able to be inclusive in that ask. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, here's an example of a question that's not necessarily specific to your transgender patients, but in asking if you're, you know, collecting a sexual history is one that comes up often and is something to do inclusively. So I'm, I'm married. I'm married to a cisgender woman, and she often, you know, goes to the doctor, and they ask about her, her sexual activity, and she mentions that she has a husband. And so that initiates all of the pregnancy tests. If you've been following along with the episode, you know that I don't we're not at a particularly high risk for that. Right. But they don't ask that information. They don't ask any more information about her husband or about, you know, what what sex looks like in that relationship. Right. Uh, so they're not getting that information. I think that's a great one because yeah. I have found that, you know, I'm an educator. So our, our students definitely don't get comfortable very early on in asking that question. Yeah. And then we never work on that as providers, right? And it's simple. Take the emotion, take all of the other pieces out, the biases. I just need to know this so I know what I need to assess you for. Yeah, exactly. It really is is that simple. And I can ask simple questions for everybody to understand that. And it does, so it doesn't change whether you are in the LGBTQ plus or not. It really yeah. is just how you approach it so that I can assess your specific needs. Yeah. You want to make sure you're running the right test. You can just say, I want to make sure that I'm screening for all of the relevant things 
What does sex look like in your relationships? What parts of your body are you using? What body parts are you interacting with? And, you know, we, we all, as a population, have a lot of awkwardness in talking about sex. And especially with, you know, our healthcare providers, that awkwardness, if I can tell that you don't want to talk to me about that, maybe I'm going to feel less comfortable bringing up if I'm in a situation of domestic violence or intimate partner violence, I'm not going to feel like that's a topic we're able to talk about. So I can't share that something maybe uncomfortable or unsafe is going on in my relationship. So that, that openness of just, I want to make sure that, you know, you're getting what you need. Let's have a conversation about it. That really goes along way as well. It does. And that goes a long way for anybody. I find that folks will ask those questions with their partner sitting there. And I always go, but do you really think they feel safe necessarily yeah, answering that? That's not the right, right way, right? So I think we can all look at our practices and be more mindful and, and move those practices in a better quality way so that we give better care improve our safety requirements or yeah. I, I wouldn't even say requirements just safety in general yeah. right for for everybody right and i think that's that's part of why i also this is going to be me going out there it's really about treating the person as a person. Yes, absolutely. Sometimes I'm there like a little science experiment is how some doctors treat me with the, the kind of questions they answer or they like ask to see my top surgery scars. And I'm like, I, I know that you don't need to see that. That's a very old surgery. Like, that's a little weird. I'm not a lab rat. I'm just some guy who's having stomach pain. Right. What's going on? Right, right. You know, I read um, through the National Center for Transgender Equality mm-hmm. um, Coalition, uh, a quote that I loved, living without fear of discrimination and violence and being supported and affirmed in being who we are is critical to live healthy, safe, and fulfilling lives. Yes. And that's all we're asking. Absolutely. We just want to be able to exist as we are, get treated like people. There's one scientific theory that that quote really reminds me of, which is the idea of minority stress theory, which is that the act of anticipating or experiencing discrimination, it's not just the acts of discrimination, but always being hyper aware of it has tangible impacts on our physical health, on life expectancy, on cardiovascular health, on physical health, on exercise habits, on dieting habits. It impacts every level of our life and health. So building a safe world, if we want to have healthy patients, we have to build a safe world in which they can access health. And I love that you pulled that in because we actually did a podcast on weathering in the African-American community, which falls right into all of this as well, right? So folks can go back and and listen to that. You know, so we've hit good communication. We've hit psychological safety. We've hit training. Now let's talk a little bit on how folks may do some quality improvement because I know you have done a lot of work with hospitals and clinics and what have you to make um, folks more comfortable in the care of our LGBTQ plus uh, people. And I wonder what you're seeing, what are folks working on? And I think some of it's easy. Putting inclusive material in your lobby. Yeah. Using your pronouns, right? Those are pretty simple things, but I wonder if you're seeing anything else that is innovative and um, Mm. uh, different that others could start thinking about. I love the piece because you talked about um, the EHR, the the patient's records falling apart. That's definitely one for our folks in the informatics world that we're looking at, right? So I'm wondering if you have any other thoughts. Yeah. I think in general, when I think about change like this, I think about structural change and cultural change. 
and you got to have both at the same time. So pronouns are an easy one. Do I know if I, you know, say I'm going to a new doctor structurally, do I know that they're going to ask for my pronouns and that there's going to be a place to put those in that they're going to be stored? And culturally, do I know that people are going to use that pronouns? Let's say I put, you know, they, them, or I put he, him, but I still have long hair. Are people going to respect my pronouns even if they don't think I quote unquote look like those pronouns? So number one is, you know, what are the structures that are in place? And number two is, is the culture in place that the people support those structures? So it's intake forms, you know, preferred name, legal name, using preferred name every everywhere possible and only using legal name when absolutely required. Uh, And then culturally, are those things being respected? Some other things that I've seen that I really enjoyed is, you know, people checking in with me individually, doctors that I go to more regularly, which is not many because I don't tend to feel safe going to the doctor, but saying we want to make sure this is a safe environment. What do you need? And sometimes it's not necessarily within the bounds of the structures, right? So my OBGYN that I used to see back when I lived in Connecticut would say, you know, it's always really hard to be a man in the waiting room without a woman there with him because everyone's like, what are you doing here? I have a beard. Why are you here? And so she would schedule me always for the very first appointment of the day. She would unlock the waiting room early. So I did not have to share the waiting room with anyone. And then she let me leave out the side door. So I didn't have to go through that space. Was it an official policy? No, but she checked in with me. And I said the hardest part of this appointment for me or part of it is sitting in that waiting room and having everybody stare at me. And so building that system was really, really helpful, that little thing that she did to stand up for me and just to make it a little more comfortable. And so finding ways that you can check in with your regularly you know, seen patients and say, what can I do for you? Because there's nothing that can tell you what a specific patient needs except for that patient. I love that. And I think the piece of that for me that I always look at is how do I check my own biases and know where my biases are? Yes, Because we all have biases. And some of them are innate in us because of the culture we grew up in and and what have you. So how do we stop ourselves at times and say, I got to work on that one? Yeah, exactly. Because it's not that I'm trying to be unsafe or uncaring or what have you. Just some things in my mannerisms may come out or in the words I use may come out that isn't making others feel safe. So I think that's something that you can do individually in, in quality improvement, right? Yeah. And, and then move that into the, the culture and how do I bring others along and educate them. And I want to pull in a couple of areas. There's, there's folks, uh, what we're going to do is also add some links uh, at, at the, with this podcast for areas that you can do some reading and look at questions that are appropriate and not appropriate, kind of like the I'm curious yeah, versus I need care to know, curiosity. Yeah, things sure. of that nature that we'll add to the podcast so people can continue on learning and, and reading. Yeah. yeah. I love that. And I'll also say, too, you know, on that note of like, those moments of discomfort and identifying our bias, leaning into those moments of discomfort, learning what discomfort looks like in other people and learning what your own when you're feeling un- uncomfortable, and then recognizing those moments. Okay, what made me uncomfortable in this situation? Is it that I thought this patient was too young? Is it that I didn't like that they had you know short hair and wanted to use she, her pronouns? What made you uncomfortable? And that's our biases usually show up in our fear and our discomfort, our right. anger secondarily, but fear and discomfort are the biggest places those biases start to show up. So noticing those moments, that's a great place to ask yourself, I wonder what's going on here. Right. I find that my own biases come out when I'm fearful that I'm going to make a mistake. Yes, absolutely. Right. So getting 
comfortable is having these conversations. Exactly. Finding safe spaces and great resources like the links you're going to be sharing in this podcast. It's all really phenomenal. Find places to learn where learning is the priority. Indeed. The other thing I'm going to share for those of you who are educators for health and human service future providers. We have a toolkit on the IPCC website that is built for educators to pull this into our competencies. And they're amazingly built by um, folks here at St. Ambrose, one of our MPH alum. She also was nursing faculty here in in public and community health as her background. And so that's a great resource as well to pull in um, areas of skills, attitudes, and knowledge that you're future providers need in the care of the LGBTQ plus population. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. Definitely check that resource out. Excellent. Ben, thanks for the talk. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was really lovely. Audio production for the Institute for Person-Centered Care podcast is provided by KALA-FM Studios in Davenport, Iowa. The show is engineered by Dave Baker. It is produced by Ann Garten, Director of the Institute for Person-Centered Care and Nursing Faculty at St. Ambrose University.